working drummer. Now kick it. This is the Working Drummer Podcast, serving up perspectives, experiences, and stories from ground-level working pros. Advice, tips, and secrets on how to build a career in the music business. Hey everyone, this is Zach Albetta, and thanks for joining us for Working Drummer Podcast. This week I talk with Carter McLean, who has over 15 years experience living and working in New York. For the past few years, his main gigs have been in the drum chair for The Lion King on Broadway and with eight-string guitarist Charlie Hunter. He is also the proprietor of Four Hands Drumming, an educational website featuring video lessons about everything from basic technique to sound manipulation. Hey folks, can we talk snare drums real quick? Dreamy, loud, bright, poppy, clean, articulate snares, and well... Do you believe at love at first sight? Okay, first sound. Well, before I get into all that, let me tell you, the folks at KHS America invited me back out to their place to experience a few new snare drums they launched at Winter Nam. And the drum I fell in love with, I was mentioning, it's one of the new Mapex Black Panther Design Lab series snares. It's called the Heartbreaker. A 14x6 8-ply mahogany shell with reinforcement rings, I could instantly hear the possibilities with this drum. And our friends at KHS America allowed me to take this drum on a test drive. I've used it live and in the studio, and let me just say, it got noticed. Punchy yet warm, it never lost its beautiful tone, even as I tuned it lower and lower. The other snares in this line include the Cherry Bomb, an 8-ply cherry wood precise-sounding snare, available in 14x6 or 13x5.5, and the Equinox, a 14x5 6-ply maple snare that's described as classic, bright, and articulate. Yes, all true. Some of the shared features of these four drums are the pure sound snares and the micro-lock, cylinder drive with the butt-end adjuster, and English mat. Okay, you know that little click-click you feel on the throw that keeps the snares in place? That's what I'm talking about. You're going to want to hear this. So this conversation was a little shorter than we normally do. Carter had about a 45-minute window in his day here, uh, but we really wanted to get him on, so we grabbed the opportunity and got in as much as we could in that time. So here we go. Enjoy Carter McLean. One of the reasons I wanted to talk to you is because you're you're a New York guy. You live in New York, um, and you know we've we've talked to a lot of drummers so far from Nashville and from L.A. and from other parts of the country, um, and a lot of them have lived in New York at one point or or grew up around there. Uh, and and to be quite frank, we've we've heard some horror stories about New York and why they don't live there. <laughs> um, so, uh, you know, not to, not to put you on blast and, and make you the spokesman for the entire city, but make, make the, <laughs> make the case for, for living in New York. What do you love about it and what's great about it? Well, yeah, I moved to New York when I was like 22, 22 or three, I think 22. And, um, it was right before nine 11 happened. I moved in May mm-hmm. of 2001. Um, so May, June, July, August. So I was there for like four months. Um, I'll just give you the quick rundown of my New York experience and then people can judge whether yeah. they want to move to New York or not. <laughs> um, and this is also back in 2001. So things are very different now, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's something to keep in mind. Um, so basically I moved there. I, I didn't, nobody knew who I was. I didn't know, you know, I knew a couple people in town, but nobody. And so I just worked at a music store basically. And it was like, I picked this shop called Manny's Music, which is a pretty famous music store. I mean, Hendrix and Clapton and the Stones and all these people would go there. And Buddy Rich. I mean, it's been there. It was there forever. That whole street is now closed. Um, worked there. And I promised myself as soon as I got one call 
for a gig, not like a big tour or anything, but just like, Hey, can you do this gig on Friday night? I was going to quit my job <laughs> because it's really easy to get stuck in a music store situation and just sort of work there. And that's, yeah. you know, you don't make a lot of bread and it's just sort of easy and that's what people get stuck doing. Mm -hmm. So you got to make a decision to, you know, cut that off at a very early stage, which I did. And then, uh, the first call I got was for a gig for this guy, Melvin Sparks, um, who is a soul jazz guitar player. He used to play with James Brown and a bunch of people and really, really great guitar player. Mm -hmm. And I did that for about two years. Um, and I, I, I tell people I paid basically all of my dues playing with that one guy because it was so intense. Um, he would, you know, say, get in the van, we're going down, we're doing a gig in South Carolina. We would drive like 12 hours straight do the gig in South Carolina, end the gig at like 1 or 2 a.m., get back in the van, drive back to home. Wow. And there was no seats in the back. Oh, it was come just on. like an empty van with like a beanbag chair that like cat piss was all over. I mean, it was literally oh. like really brutal. And for that gig, I think I made 100 bucks. Oh, God, man. Yeah, so I did that kind of stuff for like two years. The music was cool, though. Like we did a tour with Fred Wesley from James Brown and the yeah. and all that. Yeah. Got to play with Bernie Worrell. Um, you know, we opened up for the meters a couple times. I got to meet Zig and sort of yeah. hang And I got to meet Idris Muhammad through through Melvin. Actually, a funny story. The first I, – I auditioned for Melvin in his basement, and he was like, all right, man, can you do a record next week? And I was like, uh, yeah, I guess so. He's like <laughs> – Idris Muhammad can't make it, uh, so I want you to do it. <laughs> it's like, all right, because I was a huge fan of Idris's. Yeah. Um, so that was sort of a crazy thing is just to get thrown into it. Um, so I was playing with him for a couple of years, touring all over the place. It was fine. The music was pretty cool, but it was better than working at a music store, you know? Right. And then uh, I got a call. Well, I didn't get a call. I um, somebody asked me to, to check out people were hearing my name a little bit and asked me to do this off Broadway reading. It wasn't a show that was open yet. This was right before nine 11 happened. Mm -hmm. Um, it was called raise the roof and, uh, Michael Lanehart was playing trumpet. Who's like the MD for Steely Dan now. And mm -hmm. he's like a producer. He's amazing. So he was in the band and I was, I knew who he was. So I said, yeah, I'll totally do this. Yeah. But I didn't know what kind of bread I should be making. Um, and when I moved to New York, uh, somebody was like, oh, you should call this guy. Or DW, I was endorsing their drums at the time. DW said, you should get in touch with this guy, Tommy Igo. Um, you know, he'd be a good guy to network with in the city. And I was like, yeah, okay. Um, you know, I didn't, I didn't really know that much about him. And I wasn't interested in Broadway. I wanted to do, you know, like a pop gig with Peter Gabriel or Sting or something. Right. And so I waited a while. And then... When I got this offer to do this off-Broadway thing, I called him just about what kind of money I should be getting for an off-Broadway show. That led to him asking me, he said, well, if that show doesn't end up working out, I'd love for you to sub at Lion King. Wow. Um, so that's how I got on Lion King. I was a sub there forever. And then about five and a half years ago, I took over the book permanently because he, he left. Yeah. Um, and so New York, I don't know, to sum it up, that's sort of like a very, very short blank of what New York is for me. Mm -hmm. um, it's hard, though, man. The first like open jam session I ever went to, a friend of mine, Donald Edwards, who's a great drummer, 
uh, invited me down. He's like, oh, there's this open session that my buddy runs. And we go down and it was Jeff Tane Watts' session. <laughs> and it was like David Bugway on piano, Paul Bollenbach on guitar, like all these ridiculous dudes. And he's like, yeah, man, go sit in. And I'm like, hell no, I'm not going to sit in. I'm clean for the front door. Right. And so they basically ended up pushing me on stage at a certain point, And I went up and sat in. Um, and this piano player walked up and sat in at the same time with me. And he called some bizarro tune I had never heard of and still probably have never heard of. Right. And it was, you know, one, two, 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 boom, <laughs> go. And it was sort of hold on. And the guy was just destroying the piano, like amazing piano player. And I just sort of got my ass handed to me. And then when I went and said, hey, man, I just went up to the piano player and said, man, what's your name? You sound unbelievable. He's like, oh, my name's Eric Lewis. I said, okay, who do you play with? He's like, I play with Elvin. <laughs> So I was like, oh, okay. Yeah. That's how New York is. Right, right. So, uh, you know, it's you just have to be very prepared to be playing with or in front of, like, your favorite, most intimidating drummers, basically. Yeah, yeah. That's sort of what happens. And um, so it sounds like, you know, between the between the, the musical thing and, and the touring thing, getting getting your start in New York um, didn't have as much to do necessarily with going to all those jam sessions and like being in the trenches in the city but like you got a little you got a little touring gig you got a little work doing doing the musical thing and and were you were you spared the uh, the years of, of poverty and abuse that that so many musicians who moved to New York experience no I mean it was <laughs> That's a real thing, man. I mean, rent when I, I mean, this is, and this is back in 2000, you know, one, my rent was a thousand dollars a month. I, I used to, I, I was also moving from Colorado. So my rent went from, uh, I think I was paying $300 a month and I was playing at all these ski resorts and making good money. So I was like, man, I'm rolling in it. This is great. So right. I saved up when I moved there. My my savings was gone in about a month, Ugh. you know, because you got to do first month's rent deposit. You got to pay your first month's rent, so that's like three grand. Boom, right there, gone. Yeah. On top of moving expenses and all that stuff, I was making two hundred dollars a week at Manny's Music. Right. And that was like a good deal. Yeah. Um, and so I was teaching drum lessons just to like kids to to make up the difference, you know. Mm -hmm. Um. But yeah, man, I was broke for a really long time, you know. Yeah. And that didn't uh, didn't deter you. You you stuck it out. I mean, obviously you stuck it out. But like, what was your what was your mindset during those years well, when you I didn't know? I don't know. I didn't get into playing music to become you know. If I wanted to make a million dollars a year, I would just join a hedge fund and figure that out. Right. But I, I jump off a bridge because uh, that has zero interest in my life. Yeah. So that's, I just knew that going into it. You know, I'm not going to make a whole lot of bread on this, but I'm going to have fun, and it's something I'm good at something I've been doing since I was eight years old. It's like, it's not like I really had a choice. I, I couldn't just go like, all right, well, I'm not going to play music anymore. Right. Right. I think if you're really, really, really in love with it, like most musicians are, you just deal with it. You know, it's, it's a very difficult profession, man. It's, you know, yeah. the hardest things next to being an actor. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, you know, the years I spent in LA, uh, I had some, some friends who were actors and I worked with actors at Disneyland and, you know, the, the stories I heard, like as, as bad as musicians have it, uh, or as, you know, as tough as their road can be in, in a place like New York or LA, I think actors have it a hundred times worse. 
It's, oh yeah, because they're not just look. They're they're not listening to you. They just look at you when you walk in the room, and they're like, "Thanks for coming out." Next, right, right. It's, just, it's such a visual thing that it's it's pretty rough. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, what about the? Uh, you said you you've been doing the Lion King gig for five years as the full time guy. Yeah, I took over like five and a half years ago, something like that. Um, so. I think you're the you're the first guy that we've uh, we've talked to who is you know currently doing a, a, a bona fide Broadway gig. Um, so so talk about talk about that gig you know musically and and how it fits into your day every day because it is every day, right? Yeah, Mondays we're off, and then there's you know there's eight shows for the rest of the week. So like in our schedule now is spring schedule. There's a Tuesday night show. There's two today. So there's a two o'clock and an eight o'clock. Mm-hmm. So I have to leave here to make it in for the two o'clock show. Um, and then I'm having dinner with a buddy and then I'm taking off tonight. So the way that works is I have about six subs that are great drummers. They're all good friends of mine in the city. Mm-hmm. So if I need to take off tonight and t- like I'm playing four shows with Charlie this week and then I'm doing three days of recording a new record at my house with him the following week. So I got to take off like eight shows. Right. So I divvy those up between a couple guys. Um, and then, you know, it just allows you the freedom to sort of run around. But so that's the, uh, the scheduling part of the show. I, I usually do about six shows a week just cause I need a couple days off just to have a break. Yeah. My typical day is I get up with my wife at like seven, seven fifteen, help her get out of the house. She's running around I'm making coffee and stuff. And I'll typically do, because I have four hands drumming my educational site. Right. We'll talk about that too. Yeah. That takes a ton of time. Originally, that that site was going to be myself, Mark Juliana, and Matt Johnson. Mm-hmm. Um, it was going to be the three of us. And Mark got offered a thing to do his new his book that came out uh, and an instructional DVD while we were having our meetings. And I was like, man, go, you know, obviously go do that. Yeah. And, be great and i also want to see what you do mm-hmm. and then matt and i were, were doing it for a while together um and then some really heavy stuff happened to matt and his family situation and he just can't he can't basically contribute to it anymore so he's done about three episodes with me and then i'm taking the site over from here on out okay. so i'm doing a lot of filming for that in the morning and editing and teaching and all that and that takes a lot of time when you do it literally i'm doing everything by myself yeah yeah um, so I'll do that in the afternoon. I'll break for lunch and either teach like a Skype lesson online or I'll sometimes have students come in. Like I taught a kid yesterday from London who was in town for the day. And then I'll usually just walk over from there and go to the theater and do the show. Show is usually either from seven to nine thirty or eight to ten thirty. And then I get home around eleven thirty. Wow. And that's most days. That's yeah, it's like every day. That's yeah. like a normal mellow day. Right, right. <laughs> that's if everything goes according to plan. Yeah, that's like that's easy. Yeah. Um, so, what about uh, what about the Lion King gig from a from a musical perspective, from a drumming perspective? Had you uh, had you had a lot of experience in musicals before that? No, I mean, I did like a West Side Story in high school. I did in college. They hired me to do hair, mm-hmm. um, which was cool because it's a bunch of you know women running around naked on stage when you're in college. That was sort of fun. Yeah. And that was easy because it was like a psychedelic rock show. So that was like, I could basically sight read that stuff. It was like, you know, sixth grade sight reading rock beats. Right. 
So Lion King was weird. Like I didn't move to New York to be a Broadway guy at all. It was mm-hmm. the last thing on my radar. I was like, Oh yeah, Broadway shows and eh, whatever. Yeah. Um, and then when I went in to watch the book, I was like, Oh, this is actually a pretty interesting drum set book. Cause it's very kind of Peter Gabriel secret world live influenced, which is totally up my alley. That's one of my favorite records with Manu on drums. Mm-hmm. And it's a lot of those grooves like Duke, yeah yeah tons of that kind of stuff a lot of like tons of shaker stuff going right right uh it's not super technical it's not like a there's a couple little sections that give people trouble where like you have to play a shuffle in your left hand really quietly with these like accented backbeats that trips people out Mm -hmm. there's a lot of orchestral bass drum hand drum palungo stuff shakers wood blocks cowbells electronic drums um so it covers a lot sonically there's like sort of an r&b kind of tune there's like you know can't wait to be king yeah there's circle of life there you know there's all these pretty different vibes yeah yeah it seems like a fun book like i haven't actually seen the show but from what i know about you know the movie and and that music um it's it's definitely not a typical sort of broadway drum book yeah, you don't have a lot of like oompa oompa right. symbol, you know, yeah. tin roll. It's thank God. Like I went and saw a show the other night with my wife, um, and I was just sitting there the whole time going like, "Thank God, I don't have to play this for fifteen years." <laughs> I mean, look, knock on wood, I'd love to have any gig for fifteen years, and I'm—I'll just put it out there—I feel very, very lucky to have gotten that book. Yeah, um, it's a very, you know. You know, it's one of the best shows in the world, basically. So it's pretty heavy to come in as a kid, sub on that as your first show ever, and then eventually take over the book. I mean, that like if somebody told me that when I was 15, I would have been like, yeah, that's a nice story. But that's like only in the movies. But it, it can happen. Yeah. Yeah. Um, something I'm curious about and and I don't I don't want to pry into your financial life at all. And I don't want you to give any specifics. But if if Lion King was all you did. And, you know, didn't do four hands drumming or, or Charlie Hunter or anything. If it was just Lion King, would you would you make it in New York? Would you be OK? Oh, yeah, I could. Yeah. I mean, you could you could take the Lion King paycheck and cut it in less than a half and I'd be fine. Wow. OK, that's great. I mean, it's a good paying gig. It's a union gig. And yeah. luckily, like the, the way the, the scale works, I'm not going to actually say any numbers, but like yeah. you have a base scale. So like if it's just a five piece drum kit, right? That's your base, mm-hmm. okay? But then let's say you add in electronic drums. It could be one crash cymbal on a rolling pad, okay? Yeah. Your paycheck goes up 25% just because of that. Wow. And then you have like doubles, like orchestral bass drum and shaker is a double, right? Then I play like African hand drum. That's another double. So I have electronic drums and two doubles and the drum set. So your paycheck sort of, like I make a little less than probably the conductor does, <laughs> you know? So yeah. it's a great, it's, it's great. This is where the union is, is, is so great. Uh, and you know, a, a lot of, a lot of players in a lot of towns don't really have to deal with the union at all. Um, I, I was a member of the union as, uh, when I worked at Disneyland, um, in LA. Oh yeah. We both worked for Disney. Did you, what'd you do? Well, Lion King is Disney. Oh, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, uh, yeah, like the, the reason I ask about that is, is just because of the notion of, of complacency, because, uh, when I was, uh, at Disneyland, 
you know, it was, it was the same situation. Like I didn't really have to worry about money too much. Um, and it, you know, there were times when it made me kind of complacent and I didn't, you know, I didn't hustle as much as I could have to do some other cool gigs outside of Disneyland. Um, and I would have to like kick myself in the ass and be like, get out there. Like we got to do something other than Disneyland or we're going to go insane. Um, so, and the other thing is that it sounds like Lion King takes up quite a bit more time. Like that's an everyday thing for you. And and Disneyland was like two or three days a week for me. Um, so I mean, I'm in Times Square every day, basically. Yeah. God, that's insane. Which is nuts. So, so how have you, how have you kept from, uh, just like resting on the Lion King gig? What, what, uh, well, just musically, you know, I I've been in there a lot. You know, when I took over the gig, I was like, all right, I'm going to sort of post up and be here. And I I got sick of touring with the people I was touring with mostly. So I was like, I'm not going to tour anymore. I had just gotten married. We bought a house. I was like, I'm going to be home and just bang, bang these shows out. Cause you get health insurance through the show. Mm -hmm. You have a pension. So every show I play, they contribute money to my pension. So it made sense to stay. But the last couple of years I started getting, I guess, more known as a drummer. Like my Instagram started blowing up and tons of people started asking me to do clinics and teach more. And so I was like, you know, I should probably get out more and play visually in front of people because Lion King's cool, but nobody sees me or really knows what's happening. Right. So I started playing with Charlie recently, which is great. It's been super, super musically satisfying. Mm -hmm. Um, He's just such a monster musician. And we both hear things in such a similar way that it's like an instant connection. Yeah. Yeah. Like the gig we're doing tonight is uh, with this amazing singer. And we've only played maybe four or five tunes out of like the 10 that we're going to play tonight. So half the set tonight is totally first time. We don't know how we're ending these tunes. We don't know parts yet. It's just going to literally be like, all right, let's go. But he trusts everybody so much that he's just like, cool, let's go count it off. Right. You know, cause he knows we're all going to come up with something musical and it's going to come out really cool. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so doing that, I play with my brother, who's a really badass guitar player and singer songwriter named Jamie McLean. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's like more like a Tom Petty Southern rock kind of thing. Great songwriter, really great guitar player. Um, and then I also play with another band that, you know, it's a bunch of Broadway guys and guys that toured around, um, that just wanted to play. Mm-hmm. This guy Ben Butler on guitar, and uh, he 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 was playing with Chris Bodie for a long time. He just quit that so he could be in the city more. He's probably one of the best guitar players in New York. He's ridiculous. Uh, this guy Michael Viseglia on bass. Um, he's played with a ton of people. He's the Kinky Boots bass player right now on oh, Broadway. Cool. Yeah, and then this keyboard player who's like twenty six or seven. His name's Casimir Liberski. Uh, I think he won the Thelonious Monk piano competition a couple years ago. Okay. He's like an absolute just monster keyboard player. So it's, it's the four of us and it's like a weather report kind of, I don't want to use the word fusion cause I sort of don't enjoy fusion music, but it's like everyone in this band can absolutely shred at will. Right. So it's sort of like groove based, but there's definitely moments of like bitches brew kind of stuff happening and weather reports. So mm-hmm. that band is called the, um, it's called middle of nowhere. Um, and we'll probably do a record this year where you can actually hear me absolutely shredding, which cool. I usually don't do, but in yeah. that, it's like sort of calls for it. So it's fun. Right. Um, and those are sort of the three projects I've been up to recently besides King, and that keeps me pretty musically fulfilled. So where do you go to find a treasure trove of information about vintage drums, custom drums, and legendary drummers? Notsomoderndrummer.com. 
Since 1988, Not So Modern Drummer is an institution dedicated to researching and documenting the history of modern drums, the art of drum building, and the legendary drummers who play them. The writers and contributors are some of the top vintage and custom drum experts from around the world. Not So Modern Drummer serves as an online gathering place and marketplace for the worldwide community of drummers who buy and sell, collect, preserve, and play these instruments. It also hosts drum-related events that are attended by drummers from all over the world. This website is easy and fun to explore, and the monthly digital magazine subscription is free. So check out NotSoModernDrummer.com. So with all the playing you're doing, um, how and, and why is uh, Four Hands Drumming uh, you know, kind of fitting into your, into your professional life? Well, that, I mean, people were asking me to teach more and more and more. And, you know, I didn't go, I'm a self-taught drummer. I just wanted to play. And then people started asking me, Hey, how do you do this? How does that work? How do you know? Blah, blah, blah. So I started teaching more. And then Matt John, I did a clinic for this company, Drumeo, um, in Canada and, and Matt Johnson saw it. He was, Matt's a good buddy of mine. And he was like, man, we should do something like that. You know, it would be easy. You have all the stuff at your house. We can film it and just do it. And he's like, I think we should get Mark Giuliano involved. And I was like, yeah, man, the three of us, that's like a really diverse trio of teachers. Mm-hmm. We all play totally differently. Um, so that's how that started. It was sort of like a fun project with a couple friends. And then slowly, people started dropping off like, Oh, I can't do it for this reason. Or I can't do it for this reason. And so I was like, yeah, I'm just not going to do this. And then, um, Matt and I were already working on the website and figuring all this stuff out. So most of it was done. I just needed to film a lot of the content. And so I just started breaking it down. I was like, okay, people ask me all the time on YouTube videos and concerts and stuff, man, your drum sounds so good. How do you tune your drums? I've been asked that question like 8,000 times. (laughs) So I said, all right, first lesson on forehands drumming, tuning your instrument. Yeah. So I set up a couple different kits. I tune one kit like three different ways. Matt shows how he tunes them and tapes them and does all these different techniques on the bass drum and all that stuff. So like it starts out really simple. Like, okay, well, you want to play drums? Your drum should sound good. Let's start there. Yeah. Then I think the next episode is on technique. So we do a whole like hour on technique. Here's like, you know, how I use my fingers. Here's how I approach double stroke rolls. Here's how I break up these patterns around the drums. Like, and it's a very useful thing. Like I didn't really, I only studied out of one drum book, which was the Gary Chester's new breed when I was in high school. Uh And I went through that in like a year. And then I was like, "Eh, I just want to play so that I haven't really studied out of any books. I'm pretty much by ear. So that's how I'm teaching because it's, I wish somebody was doing this when I was learning because it's very useful stuff. Like, you know, I did a whole episode on what you need to have together to do a Broadway show, how right. to for conducting, like what technique do you need to have together? Yeah. Um, the last episode I did is on like uh, creating grooves. Um, so it's stuff that any drummer can use like that night on a gig. Yeah. I was going to say like from, from the very beginning you were, you were doing kind of broad subjects like, you know, tuning and, and technique. Has it, uh, has it remained like, has, has the, the focus of the, the website remains universal stuff that everybody can use. Yeah. Cause that's the point. I mean, there's so many guys teaching like chops and shredding and this is how you play, you know, 64th notes on your feet between your foot and your left hand. And da, da, da. Right. It's like, that's cool. That is the opposite of where I am coming from. I'm yeah. coming from the music side of things. 
mm-hmm. you know, and not the uh, gymnastics side of things on drums. It's, yeah. It's like, to me, it's not a powerlifting competition. It's like we're making music. We're not uh, trying to like bench press the biggest weight on the planet. Right. That's what I think. Uh, there's a lot of that out there. So I'm trying to go the opposite direction and say like, hey, if you've got a gig at uh, Rocket Music Hall with a singer tonight, all of that stuff you've been practicing, you can throw right out the window because you're not going to use it at all. Right. right. You know, it's like, do you own a pair of brushes? Do you know how to use them? <laughs> do you own like a kashishi shaker and know how to use that behind the singer? Mm-hmm. You know, it's stuff like that that you could use that night. You know, it's not some crazy technical stuff. Yeah. The other thing uh, that that impressed me about Forehand's drumming was was just the overall audio and video quality of of those videos um and it it doesn't look like you're using a super complex mic setup um and you know with just all the all the drum videos that are out there nowadays um i i don't watch most of them simply because of the quality um yeah i don't know some of them some of them i turn off just because i'm not interested in the content or it's you know whatever but a lot of times i'll turn it off because the video is shit or the audio is shit. Um, so or I'm yeah. right. Right. So I'm, I'm, I'm curious if you want to, you know, divulge a, a couple of secrets about just some, some basic things, some basic gear uh, or techniques that drummers can use to improve the quality of, of their videos. Yeah. It's no secret, man. So I did for, I, I was actually going to quit playing drums for a while because I was getting really fed up with, how the pay was and touring and da da da, and I actually started a photography company. Okay. Um, and I was doing you know corporate events for Allstate Insurance, doing hedge like not fun, exciting landscape photography like right you know, in Alaska. But it was paying that one gig I did with them paid more than I would make in like two months. <laughs> Man. So you know it was. I said, okay, I'm doing this. So I bought a nice Canon 7D crop frame uh, body. I bought a Zeiss 35 and a 50 millimeter lens and a 10 to 20 Sigma wide angle lens. And I was doing photography. And then I stopped doing that when Lion King called and realized, oh, I have a Pro Tools rig at my house. I can sync the video with the audio. And I, I just use iMovie. Mm-hmm. And it looks good. If you have a decent eye for like color correcting things and knowing how it actually looks in real life and how it comes out on your screen, the video thing is pretty straightforward. I taught myself how to do it in you know a day. Hmm. And then the audio setup for me is typically, uh, I just started using more recent stuff is a BAE 1073 MPF mic pre's. They're basically Neve clones. They sound unbelievable on mm-hmm. drums. Yeah. And I usually use a, a biodynamic M160 ribbon mic as an overhead, just in the center, about you know a foot above where my head is. Yeah. Uh, but just in the a center. single single overhead. Yep. And then a bass drum mic. I use an M88 biodynamic. Um, I don't use any compression, and I use the light EQ to take out around 300 hertz. Mm-hmm. And uh, now everyone knows exactly how to get my sound. <laughs> there you go. Um, it just it, it uh, something that's in the in the back of my mind lately is uh, it came from an interview that we did uh, um, I don't know six weeks ago or something with uh, Hubert Payne the Nashville drummer um, oh. and he was talking about you know when he started getting his home studio sort of set up uh, he he talked about I really related to this he talked about how 
he didn't feel like it was worth getting something set up at home until he had the money and the equipment and the expertise to make it all really awesome. Um, but he realized like, I just have to start. I just have to, you know, buy whatever equipment I can afford right now and start screwing around with it and learn how to use it. Um, and, and just like start the process of, of acquiring the knowledge and, and the gear. Um, so I mean, it sounds like you already had kind of, especially on the video side, you had the, uh, the expertise and the gear already going, but was, was there a learning curve for the, for the audio side? Uh, yeah, I mean, I still mess around and try to, I mean, my approach to miking a drum kit is if you're in the room with a drummer, let's say I come over and check out your drum set and I'm standing in the room, I want the listener to hear what I'm hearing in that room. Mm -hmm. I'm not trying to put a mic on every drum and every hi-hat and the bottom of the snare and da, da 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 As soon as you do that, it's not a drum set. It's like drums sort of mixed together. Right. And a kit you got to balance yourself live. Like tonight, if I want somebody in the back of the room to hear my hi-hat chick, I need to be aware of that and make sure that I'm projecting that and that my kit is balanced acoustically. Mm -hmm. now, I'm not going to go in there and say, oh, later, I'll just turn the hi-hat up fader and then I'll mix it. It'll sound great. Right. You got to mix yourself while you're playing. You know, yeah. like, when you, you know, when I did that gig with Charlie in Atlanta, he insists that they only use an overhead and a kick mic. So it's like the exact same setup I use because it picks up the dynamics. So we control the dynamics, not the mixing guy. Right, right. You know, if he wants the snare drum to be cracking, that's not his choice. That's my choice. Right. You know what I mean? And that's how I how I see things with miking drums. It should sound like a kit, you know? I'm not a big fan of miking everything up. Speaking of Charlie, uh, in the in the time we have left, uh, talk about how that how that gig came about, and and you know what kind of a dude Charlie is. It seems like he's just a really enjoyable, happy dude to work with. I mean, that's a total front. He's one of the most uh, whip cracking people I've ever worked with. <laughs> I mean, he's just a real drag. And, <laughs> you know, no, Charlie is a, a. I think he's a genius. I. I I've never met many people that can sort of hang on his level. Yeah. Um, he's an amazing encyclopedia of not just musical knowledge, but history. Like the guy reads so many books. It's when we were on tour, he was talking about this book and that book that he read. And then I looked up these books and they're like encyclopedias. Jeez. He's just a real bright guy. He's a total sweetheart. He's hysterical. His groove is absolutely ridiculous. Yeah. Um, he can play drums better than most drummers. I, that's what I've heard, and I have not heard him play drums. But He's ridiculous. Like, most of our sound checks are me playing, trying to play his instrument, and then him just schooling people on drums. <laughs> um, so it's a little intimidating knowing that, because when you're playing, you know he's listening to everything you're doing. Right. And he started as a drummer, is that correct? Yeah, I guess when he was really young, he started playing drums. Um, and then he became a guitar player, and just sort of guitar became, you know, super simple for him. Sorry, my cat Jim is attacking my foot. Sorry. <laughs> um, you know, so he, you know, started playing guitar, and that became sort of easy for him. So then he started making his own instrument, and that was sort of the... That's it, you know. Yeah. I have a, a good friend in Atlanta named Kelly McCarty, who's a great bassist. Um, and he's also an eight-string guitarist. And he's he's studied with Charlie a bit. And he said, um, like, when he first started studying with Charlie, Charlie told him, go buy a drum set and just learn to play that thing for a year. Because this, what, what 
what I do on the eight string guitar, it's, it's basically a drum set. Like you have to think about the voicing in that kind of kick snare hi hat way. Yeah. Your brain needs to separate that way. Cause like I play bass and I play guitar, like fingerstyle acoustic guitar. So I can't say I picked it up quickly, but I could get a little bit of a groove happening on it, like faster than most people, because I think about it like a drum kit. You sort of look at the bass strings like the bass drum, and then you look at the other strings, which would be your other four fingers, and that's sort of like the rest of the stuff you're filling in around it. Yeah. You just got to make sure you're picking harmonically pleasing, you know, chord structures and all that kind of stuff. Right. But, and what was the what was the process of learning Charlie's tunes and kind of learning his tendencies on stage and just getting to know, you know, his uh, his world that way? We just dive in, man. Like the first gig we ever did, there was no rehearsal. Played a Rockwood music hall duo. I said, uh, you know, what song send me whatever songs you want me to learn. He's like, Oh man, we'll just play. <laughs> And I'm like, okay. So I, you know, played at Rockwood. We played at a small room. It was maybe 50 or 60 people, but it was packed. There was a lot of heavy musicians in there that were friends and people I knew. So it was nerve wracking. And I don't know how to interact with Charlie on stage. I've, I've known him for a long time personally. Right. But it's different when it's like he's staring you down. He's like, all right, let's play a shuffle. Three, four. And you're like, whoa, what? <laughs> um, and you can see the first on my YouTube channel, my, the first gig we ever did is there's a video of the whole thing. Hmm. So that whole show is improv. Wow. And then the second show I played with him was opening for Snarky Puppy, sold out at Irving Plaza, like right before New Year's Eve. There's a video of that, too. So that's the second show. Because um, I'm trying to document a lot of this stuff just because it's there's amazing musical moments in it. It's not so much for me. It's like just some of the music that comes out is so great. Right, right. Um, so that's all improv. There's a couple tunes that I had heard before off of his records, but he doesn't tell me this stuff. He just starts playing. Yeah. And you just jump in and go, okay, well, I guess I'll play it this way. And he loves that spontaneity. That's what he's all about. He told me on this last tour, he said, man, I know your facility on the drums. Do not hold out on me. Hmm. He's like, I'd rather see you totally mess up and fall on your face and go for it than play it safe the whole night. That's cool. So it's a very uh, open and encouraging situation. Yeah, yeah. And what about the the duo dynamic? I mean, it, it's not very often that that a drummer you know gets to do a duo with with any instrument let alone like an eight string guitar um so yeah. had you had you had any experience with that before no i mean i've done duos with singers on acoustic guitar where she would just play guitar and sing and i would play like you know shakers or cajon or something kind of simple like that yeah that's a duo but this is different because it's sort of a trio with two people you know it's right, like he's right. playing so when you're when the only other person you're interacting with is covering the bass and the guitar, you can make immediate sharp left-hand turns musically because you're only, you're staring each other down. I mean, we set up on stage facing each other basically. Yeah. I noticed that like for most of the gig, like he was really staring you straight down. <laughs> yeah. It's intent. It was really intimidating the first time. And then I just realized he's totally He's just, he just wants to have a good time. Yeah. Right? It's, it seems like there's a little bit of fucking with you, you know, in a, in a good natured kind of, uh, uh, oh, yeah. playful I mean, way. Joke around all the time. Yeah. And that's, it puts you in a very open musical headspace. I mean, he's been doing this so long with amazing drummers and amazing musicians. He knows how to get people to relax and play their best. Right. You know? Right. And I think that's part of it is just having fun and not being uptight because if you're like this band leader that's super uptight and you got to learn these or you missed that hit on the eighth note or da da da, 
nobody's going to really want to play. Yeah. You know, they're going to feel like they're getting suffocated. So, you know, Charlie's sort of an expert at at pulling the best out of people, I think. Yeah. Were you familiar with his music, uh, you know, before, I mean, you said you knew him before you started playing with him. Oh yeah. I was, I've been a fan of Charlie since I was in high school. So, okay. So I'm going to make a confession. The, 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 the time that I saw you in Atlanta a few weeks ago was the first time that I had ever really seen or heard Charlie Hunter. Oh, wow. um, and I, I knew about him. Like I knew what he did with the whole eight string guitar thing. Um, but it was, it was the first time I'd really sat down and listened to it. And I was blown away by how greasy and soulful and, and bluesy he is. I was under the impression, um, for no particular reason that, that he was just more of a shredder and that it was kind of more of an Olympic event than, than a really, uh, musical experience. Um, Charlie is the last one on the planet that's going to even want to solo. He just wants to groove. Right. Right. You know what I mean? Like there's, there's moments during the show where we're just playing some simple pocket and we just sit there for a while because neither of us want to budge. (laughs) So good. Yeah. Yeah. You find the right kind of feel and you're both just nailing it. Why do anything else? It feels so good. Yeah. So uh, yeah, Charlie is definitely, I mean, he can play some of, ridiculous stuff yeah you know, i mean at will he's unbelievable mm-hmm. he can and when you just hear him play a regular six-string guitar it's like forget it it's it's crazy yeah but he's coming from like an old school kind of blues soul r&b thing mm-hmm. and so he just wants to groove and that's all i want to do so we get along great yeah and even his his soloing like when he does you know bust loose and 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 break a solo off it's real. It's super melodic. It's not. It's not like shredder territory at all. It's it's really melodic and soulful. Um, and I was I was just pleasantly surprised and and blown away at at what a cool musical experience it was. Yeah, he's. And that's the thing, man. At the end of the day, we're playing. You know, whether you play flute or clarinet or kazoo or drums or bass or whatever, you're playing music. It's a musical instrument. It is not a powerlifting competition with other people. It's not a competition. Mm -hmm. And these days, I guess my, my point I would like to get across if I have one is play music together. It's not, Oh, I'm going to school this guy and I'm going to shred this dude and check out how I can play faster than this guy and more complex than this dude. That's great, but you should play sports. Don't play an (laughs) instrument. Right. I mean, like you should want to support the other people that you're playing with, not beat them into submission with your chops. Yeah. 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 It reminds me of a, a quote uh, I heard Branford Marsalis. Uh, he was talking about, the, you know, the younger generation of jazz musicians in particular. And, and he said, you know, a lot of a lot of musicians might be playing in the same room, but they don't play together. Right. Um, and it, it like it, it reminded me of that that dynamic you have uh, on on stage with Charlie, and it wasn't just the duo. It wasn't the two of you. It was with a tenor sax player. Rob, yeah. What's his name again? Rob Dixon. He's yeah. A, he's a nasty tenor player, man. Dude. I mean, I've played with a lot of sax players, and that trio that you saw was, I mean, that, that was some of the most fun music I've ever played. I mean, because we were all just on the same wavelength that entire tour, man. It was really fun. Yeah. Yeah. Rob is just a, a monster player and talk about melodic and soulful and, and not, uh, you know, not capitulating to the, the tenor shredder, 
uh, role, (laughs) you know, and he can do all that stuff too, if he wants. But the nice thing about the way Charlie picks people is he picks people that will match up really well, you know? Right. And so that, I hope we get to do a recording of that particular trio because there was some amazing music in with that band. I totally agree. And I would, I would be the first in line to buy that record. Yeah, me too. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, well, cool, man. It is, it is 1043 and, and you got to go. Yeah. I got to get in my car and I got to pick out my symbols and stuff for the gig tonight, which is going to be interesting. So I got to go throw my shakers and weird, bizarre stuff. <laughs> well, good luck, man. Huh? Thanks so much for, uh, for taking some time to talk with us and, uh, you know, continued success with Charlie and the Lion King and, and the website. And, uh, you're, you're just firing on all eight, man trying to keep up with everybody that's all you know yep yep um well man it was great talking to you and uh hopefully we'll talk again soon all right be well man all right you too have a great day bye Bye. i could have talked a lot longer with carter about his uh new york experiences but we thank him for giving us the time that he did have it was uh, great to hear from a new york guy and someone who is leading the kind of multi-pronged career that we talk about a lot on the podcast You can subscribe to us on iTunes. Also, leave us a rating and review there if you see fit. We appreciate that. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and share pics and videos of your gigs using the hashtag WorkingDrummer. When we first started putting the word out about that hashtag around a year ago, I think there were a few hundred posts on Instagram that used it, and today that number is over 3,000. So it's been great to see what all of you are up to out there. Keep those coming. Thanks to Mike Jackson for his technical assistance. Matt Krause is back with you next week, and as always, thanks for listening.